When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. In the wake of global anti-racism protests in 2020, many cities around the world have initiated or expedited the process of removing statues and public monuments, celebrating historical figures who are key players in the systemic oppression of people of color. The United States has been the focal point of this debate, where the push in recent years to remove Confederate statues erected following the American Civil War has seen emotions run high on opposing sides. The catalyst for pushing the debate to the forefront was a mass shooting at a church in Charleston. In a violent hate crime, nine African Americans were killed by a white supremacist who had a history of frequently posting online images of the Confederate flag to accompany his racist content. The killer was later sentenced to death. It is widely acknowledged that the Confederate flag and statues were traditionally regarded by many as significant historical symbols of Southern pride. But they also represent suffering, entrenched racism, and violence against African Americans, and the glorification of slave ownership. In response to the push to remove these public memorials, Confederate sympathizers and right-wing groups vocally expressed their indignation over what they perceived as both an attempt to rewrite history, and that action is finally being taken to address the fact that such monuments are culturally insensitive One place that didn't escape this important discussion is the city of Charlottesville in the state of Virginia. Statues of Confederate General Robert E. Lee and Lieutenant General Thomas Stonewall Jackson have stood in the city since 1924 and 1921, respectively. In April 2017, following some months of debate, Charlottesville voted to remove the statue of Robert E. Lee entirely. But this stalled in early May, when a temporary injunction issued by the court prohibited the removal of the statue for another six months. 
By this time, the city's former Lee Park had become the preferred venue of various neo-Confederate and far-right-wing political groups, told public events in Charlottesville. This included demonstrations protesting the removal of the statues. These protests were met with peaceful resistance from anti-racism counter-protesters. But tension between the two groups usually escalated. Attempts to keep them separated weren't always successful. An intervention by law enforcement only served to further incite backlash from both sides. It's against this socio-political backdrop that today's story unfolded. Now, let's get on with it. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. than life. Heather Heyer was born on May 29, 1985, in Charlottesville to her parents, Mark and Susan. When Heather was only five months old, her parents' marriage broke down and Mark moved interstate. Heather spent her formative years growing up in Ruckersville, about a half-hour drive from Charlottesville, with her mother, Susan, older brother and maternal grandparents, with whom she was close. As a youngster, she enjoyed animatedly regaling her family with stories of what happened at school and what she and her friends were up to. Heather's ability to command the attention of others by virtue of her natural exuberance was both entertaining and refreshing. Even as a child, she was focused on the principles of fairness, respect, and ensuring everyone had access to the same opportunities. As many younger siblings do, Heather often stubbornly challenged her family about why her brother was permitted to have certain privileges, and she wasn't. Even if Heather felt something was unjust, she was insistent on understanding and others' views to create a conversation. Heather was deeply passionate and feisty, but she always went in discussions on emotive topics armed with facts and ready to listen. Her curious mind and a need to understand others' perspectives motivated her desire to engage with people, wanting to know why they held particular views. As an empath, it wasn't unusual for Heather to bring friends home who were having a rough time, convincing her mother to let them temporarily stay over as a respite from difficulties they were having at home. This was how Heather met her best friend, Justin, during high school, the pair going on to become lifelong friends. In 2003, Heather graduated from William Monroe High School in Standardsville. After finishing high school, she started working as a waitress and bartending. Heather had always had a strong sense of social justice and a keen interest in civil rights. And along with her mother, Susan, Heather identified as an ally for the Black Lives Matter movement. Combined with her gregarious personality, strong principles, forthright nature, and passion for advocacy, Heather thrived on engaging in robust discussions with others 
and didn't shy away from challenging people in a patient and respectful way. Her friends found her to be an inspiring force when it came to encouraging others to be active in speaking out against injustice. Above all, Heather was driven by compassion and the courage of her convictions. Heather had always been close to her family growing up, and spending time with her friends and relatives continued to be important to her. Even though she lived alone, she was devoted to her pet chihuahua, whom she had for company. Heather loved spending time with her friends, and she enjoyed regularly catching up with them to have a few drinks and play charades, which often had the group in stitches, including Heather, whose laugh is something that her mother Susan loved most about her daughter and remembers fondly. Despite the fact that Heather could easily command an audience, her mother Susan told Obscura that her daughter was terrified of public speaking and would do anything to avoid it. In 2012, Heather was still waitressing and bartending full-time when a friend of hers told her about a vacancy at a Charlottesville's law firm. Alfred Wilson managed the bankruptcy division at Miller Law Group, and even though Heather had no typing skills or college qualifications, Alfred decided to take Heather on as a paralegal. He was impressed when Heather told him about how much she earned in tips from her bartending work. For Alfred, it was clear that Heather had a passion for customer service and listening to people. Under Alfred's mentorship... And with a strong work ethic, Heather knuckled down and worked hard to learn the ins and outs of her new role, continuing to support herself with bartending. Through attending night school, not only did Heather earn her paralegal certification and become a public notary, but she streamlined office processes at the law firm, so it ran like a well-oiled machine. So dedicated was she to her work that for the first two years of her tenure, Heather didn't take any vacations, often working on weekends and staying late. Heather's best friend, Justin, also started working at the same law firm, and the pair enjoyed spending their weekends hanging out together. At one stage, when Heather's boyfriend at the time made a racially motivated comment about Alfred, who was an African-American, Heather ended the relationship, rather continued dating someone who held prejudiced views. The end of the relationship upset Heather, but she stuck fast to her principles. This was evident in a Facebook post she made in November 2016, which read... If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. Part 2. A Perfect Storm As you heard at the beginning of today's story, by 2017 plans were well underway in Charlottesville to remove the statues of Robert E. Lee and Thomas Jackson. The park in which the Robert E. Lee statue stood, formerly known as Lee Park, was renamed in June 2017 as Emancipation Park. Against the backdrop of simmering discontent amongst right-wing activists in Charlottesville, one resident decided to organize and stage a rally. He wanted to protest what he perceived as an anti-white agenda on the part of the city. Jason Kessler applied for the permit to hold the rally, which he named Unite the Right. At Emancipation Park, from the 11th through 12th of August, numerous far-right groups were involved in organizing the rally, including branches of the Ku Klux Klan, in addition to well-known personalities amongst the far-right community. Jason's permit was approved, but on the proviso that the rally be held at McIntyre Park two miles away instead, based on the city's concerns about public safety, Jason initiated legal proceedings to sue the city of Charlottesville on the grounds that the decision violated his First Amendment rights to peaceably assemble. 
On the evening of August 11th, an emergency injunction was granted by the Corps in response to Jason's application disputing the change of venue. The rally was cleared to proceed in Emancipation Park as originally planned. The Corps found that the venue was key to the purpose of the rally, given the location of the statue of Robert E. Lee. The court also determined that given counter-protesters would also be in attendance, law enforcement personnel would be required at both parks to manage both groups anyway. The counter-protesters, who had been putting in their own preparations leading up to the rally, consisted of church-based groups, civil rights activists, college students, and other concerned local residents. Buoyed by the successful outcome of the court proceedings, right-wing demonstrators gathered later that evening to conduct an impromptu march at the University of Virginia. White men carrying lit tiki torches and making Nazi salutes descended on the university grounds, shouting white supremacist slogans, including, White lives matter, you will not replace us, and Jews will not replace us. The march ultimately culminated at the university's rotunda, where members of the group used their lit torches to target a small group of counter-protesters were peacefully surrounding a statue of Thomas Jefferson. Virginia State Police intervened with pepper spray to prevent right-wing demonstrators from further attacking and injuring counter-protesters. Heather Heyer's friend and co-worker Courtney was one of the counter-protesters in attendance, and she live-streamed a video of the chaos on Facebook. Heather and her best friend Justin were at home watching the live stream. Both had planned to join the counter-protesters at the rally scheduled for the following day, but much to their dismay, they had second thoughts after watching the live stream. desperately wanted to show up in support of her African-American friends, but the demonstrators were volatile and confrontational. Heather and Justin decided not to attend, given the safety concerns. But Heather later changed her mind. Before going to bed, Heather texted a friend, I feel compelled to go, to show solidarity. On the morning of the rally, around 500 right-wing demonstrators were out in force at Emancipation Park, well ahead of the scheduled 12 p.m. start time. Confederate, neo-Nazi, and KKK emblems, and red caps emblazoned with Make America Great Again, were on show as white nationalists milled about. Some chatted to reporters, eagerly anticipating what they expected would be stirring speeches delivered by senior far-right figures. Just before 11 a.m., Heather Heyer parked her car in the McDonald's parking lot at the corner of Preston Avenue and Ridge McIntyre Street. She was planning to head from the counter-protest to her bartending shift afterwards. She met up with her friends Marissa, Marcus, and Courtney in downtown Charlottesville to participate in the counter-protests. Back at the park, the crowd grew. A contingent of more than a thousand counter-protesters showed up at McGuffey and Justice Parks situated on opposite sides of Emancipation Park, which were designated permitted locations for counter-protesters. The atmosphere was tense. Demonstrators brandished anti-Semitic placards with messages like, Jews are Satan's children. The chanting of racist slogans and shouted slurs noisily punctuated the air. 
The Guardian reported that many of those present on both sides wielded shields, sticks, and clubs, and wore protective body armor and helmets. More problematic was the fact that both far-right demonstrators and some counter-protesters openly carried firearms, as permitted under Virginia state law. Tensions intensified and inevitably spilled over as demonstrators and counter-protesters clashed. NPR reported that the violence, including kicking, punching, the use of chemical sprays, and smoke bombs by those on both sides. Many fled the area, seeking to escape the brutality. Local and state law enforcement agencies attempted to disperse the crowds from the park, which only escalated the violence. At 12 p.m., the governor of Virginia declared a state of emergency. It is now clear that mostly out-of-state protesters have come to Virginia to endanger our citizens and property. I am disgusted by the hatred, bigotry, and violence these protesters have brought to our state. The rally and counter-protest was declared an unlawful assembly by Virginia State Police, who sought to disperse the angry crowds with the assistance of the Charlottesville Police Department and the National Guard. Helicopters whirred overhead. Smoke grenades and tear gas permeated the air. As police barked instructions that echoed throughout the area through megaphones, some demonstrators left Emancipation Park but stayed together, some walking to McIntyre Park and others heading towards downtown Charlottesville. Groups of counter-protesters retreated to McGuffey and Justice Parks, but soon received word that the white supremacists were headed towards a low-income, predominantly African-American neighborhood. A large contingent of counter-protesters started to make their way to the same neighborhood to demonstrate solidarity with the residents. Counter-protesters from Justice Park arrived first, but continued on, making their way back to Water Street. On the way, they met a large number of counter-protesters from McGuffey Park, who arrived at the same intersection. Both groups merged, with court documents and witnesses describing the mood amongst counter-protesters as celebratory. Chants, singing, and cheers could be heard as the group continued on, waving signs including messages such as, "'Diversity lives here,' solidarity, and love. By 1.45 p.m., Heather and her friends were in the crowd, having walked down Water Street in the downtown pedestrian mall. They were now about four blocks from Emancipation Park and stopped at the bottom of the hill below the federal courthouse. The crowd of counter-protesters were elated, even though many of the rally's supporters had attempted to relocate elsewhere downtown. It soon became apparent that they decided to cut their losses and go home. As the white supremacist protesters were packing up for the day, Heather approached a woman that was with a far-right group to strike up a conversation. The woman wasn't interested in talking to Heather and replied, no comment. Heather and her friends moved on, soon coming across some fellow counter-protesters walking down Water Street towards 4th Street, who they decided to join. Marissa, Marcus, and Courtney all described the group as happy. Some people played music, some sang, and some were dressed as clowns. Courtney later said, It was like a parade. They had drums, chanting, flags, and love. You could feel the love from really good people. The mood of the group was unified and peppy. Barricades had been set up in downtown Charlottesville earlier in the day to prevent traffic flow down some streets, given the amount of people expected at the rally and counter-protest. One such barricade in place at the intersection of 4th Street and Market Street blocked vehicle access to 4th Street, but at some stage the barricade was moved, which meant vehicles once again had access to 4th Street. This allowed a maroon Honda Odyssey minivan and white Toyota Camry sedan falling behind to continue down 4th Street, where they crossed the downtown mall 
Heading towards Water Street, the Daily Progress reported that the drivers of both vehicles soon found the way ahead, blocked by a large group of counter-protesters, walking up 4th Street towards Market Street. Inside the Toyota were two sisters, who weren't participating in the protest, or on their way to visit friends. As they drove through downtown Charlottesville, navigating their way around the block streets, they saw a gray Dodge Challenger behind them. When the women realized they were stuck behind the minivan amidst the crowd of counter-protesters, the driver noticed the Dodge backing up in the rearview mirror, up to the top of the street. Neither woman felt threatened or intimidated by the crowd, and none of the counter-protesters bothered them or their vehicle. Instead, a couple of people came to the car window, apologizing and thanking the women for their patience as they waited for the throng of people to pass. Meanwhile, Inside the minivan was a woman running errands with her 10-year-old daughter, her 5-year-old granddaughter, and 22-year-old goddaughter. The driver and her goddaughter had known about the rally and decided to make a quick detour through downtown to see the demonstrations firsthand. The road closures guided the minivan down 4th Street to the intersection with Water Street, where the women noticed a happy crowd singing and dancing, moving up the street towards them. The driver wanted to capture footage of the jovial crowd, she got out of the minivan and walked to the front of the vehicle and used her phone to film the jubilant counter-protesters in the narrow street who were waving placards and chanting, Whose streets? Our streets. Listener, as you'll hear in the following audio, which was captured by witnesses on their cell phones, frantic screams suddenly pierced the air. Without warning, the gray Dodge accelerated up the street, traveling between 23 and 28 miles per hour, plowing into the counter-protesters. The thudding of metal colliding with bodies is audible as people were sent airborne over the Toyota near the intersection. The Dodge crashed squarely into the rear of the Toyota, causing it to immediately accelerate from 0 to 17 miles per hour. The impact caused the Toyota's driver's head to slam against the steering wheel, while her front passenger was slammed against the dashboard. Both sisters saw a woman fly over their car and land on their windshield, the next thing the minivan driver knew, her own vehicle was coming towards her. She was struck so hard she landed on the hood of her minivan, hitting her head on the windshield and causing her to lose consciousness. Thankfully, her other passengers were all inside the van when it was struck from behind. The van was hit so hard that its doors had jammed shut, and it wasn't until people from the crowd rendered assistance that the doors could be opened to free the distressed occupants. The impact forced both the Toyota and the minivan into the crowd, colliding with more counter-protesters. According to CBS News, moments after the Dodge plunged into the crowd, incensed counter-protesters began attacking the car, with the baseball bat being used at one stage. The Dodge then accelerated in reverse back up the street, colliding with more counter-protesters. The Daily Progress reported that the vehicle suddenly turned left before speeding away, hastily down Market Street. It's crumpled front bumper, scraping the road, but not impeding the driver's getaway. Mowed down all of these people. 
This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. As we navigate the complex narratives of true crime, it's clear that life's stressors, both big and small, can accumulate, affecting our daily lives and mental health. It's important to have a space to voice these concerns, to unravel the personal mysteries we carry within us. Therapy offers a safe space to do just that. It's not only for moments of crisis, but for anyone aiming to foster better coping skills, set healthy boundaries, and ultimately, thrive. BetterHelp facilitates this by providing online therapy that's tailored to your schedule, making it both convenient and flexible. With BetterHelp, starting therapy is straightforward. Fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. If you find your needs aren't being met, you can switch therapist at any time without any additional charges, ensuring you find the right fit for your journey. If you've been considering therapy or curious about how it can help, give BetterHelp a try. Take a moment. Visit BetterHelp.com Obscura today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Obscura. Take a moment to support your mental health. A user of the video sharing website Periscope named Revolutionary Z live streamed the attack as it unfolded. Thanks for joining me, everybody, back live in Charlottesville. Only on uh, Periscope and Facebook at the moment. Thanks for joining me. We found a group of resistance, a large group marching. Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god! Holy shit! People are badly hurt! Oh my god! Badly hurt! Badly hurt! We need paramedics right now! Go! Holy shit! A car just drove into people causing a multi chain accident! Somebody might be dead, folks! Somebody might. Holy shit! Holy shit! A car just drove into people. Somebody is really badly injured on the ground. And then the car smashed into other cars and then backed out of there. It was completely tinted up. Completely tinted up. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So somebody knew the march was coming. And before the march could get underway of resistance, of Antifa and anti-racist, some racist dick smashed into people. Holy shit. He rammed into the back of a line of cars. People were pinned in between cars. People on the ground, blood on the ground. This is chaotic. And then the car reversed and sped out of here. Completely tinted windows. You could not see who was in it. The cops just now getting here. Where the fuck were you? We got it on camera. It was like a gray Mustang, possibly all tinted out windows. Holy shit. Please, people, call 911. We need multiple ambulances. I don't know. What, what street is this? They just called. They already called. Okay. Okay, a lot of people have already called medics. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thank you for anybody home that was calling 911 when you saw that. Holy shit. The march was coming up the street here. It's coming up the street. 
And the marchers were coming up the street, and they were starting to start chanting, hundreds of them. And then a silver car came speeding through this way, bashed into a parked car that was right here, trapping people in between them, and then reversed out of here. Sorry, reversed out of here as quickly as possible. Somebody could have died from this. I saw somebody on the ground with a leg most separated. I could see meat hanging out. I saw shoes. There's countless shoes on the ground. Blood on the ground. This is what we're dealing with. Holy shit. Are you guys looking for the silver Mustang that hit everybody? What a chaotic scene. They need to get ambulances in here now so they're clearing the street. Clearing the street to get ambulances in. Did y'all get the car? It's late to be on the ground. It's bumping that's coming over. Yeah, yeah, dude. It was like a silver Mustang or something? What was that? No, what about the officer that was running behind the car? You saw it around the car. It was tinted. What about the officer that was running behind the car? What did he do? He called Oh, he straight into the crowd. Now you know he backed out and got away. Got away? Yeah, dude. We got him on camera. We got his car on camera. We're looking for his license plate. This ain't about time. Holy shit, folks! Please share this broadcast on Twitter and face and, uh, and Facebook. It was right next to the car when it came by. Did you see it? The, it was like a gray car with tinted out windows. Came slamming into people. I see. Um, Are you okay? I'm okay, but there's. I saw one guy with his leg busted open. There was like. All over the ground, blood all over the ground. Yeah, yeah. Why are there no ambulances? Heather had been standing in front of Marissa when the Dodge smashed into the crowd. Marcus pushed Marissa out of the path of the oncoming vehicle, which collided with him, sending him flying into the air. Courtney was terrified that the driver intended to run everyone over on the sidewalk, and she was flung to the ground next to Marissa. Courtney and Marissa then ran in different directions, with Courtney running around the corner and vomiting from the shock. The Dodge struck Heather directly with the front passenger side windshield. After she was hit, Heather was propelled backwards and landed near the stop sign at the intersection of 4th and Water Streets. As the vehicle reversed, one of Marcus's shoes, which had been knocked off his foot, flew out from the front of the Dodge. Listener, as you heard from the audio, counter-protesters, including Heather, were left lying motionless. Screams and shouts of the injured... Shocked and terrified counter-protesters could be heard. Others, who had narrowly avoided the rogue driver, pursued the Dodge on foot up 4th Street. Marissa and Courtney frantically searched for Heather in the melee that followed, but couldn't find her. Marissa and Marcus were two of 20 people taken to the University of Virginia Medical Center. Meanwhile, the Dodge was being tracked by a Virginia State Police helicopter, which relayed the vehicle's route to officers on the ground. The Daily Progress reported that about a mile from the attack, the Dodge drove past a Charlottesville Sheriff's deputy in a parked squad car. The deputy pursued the visibly damaged Dodge, directing the driver to pull over on Monticello Avenue. The vehicle had sustained significant damage, and it was clear it had recently been involved in an incident. Holes were smashed in the rear window. In addition to the mangled bumper, there were large dents in the hood. A shoe pair of sunglasses and a water bottle were wedged into various parts of the vehicle, which was splattered with blood and human flesh, 
The driver pulled over and put his hands out the window. When the deputy got out of his squad vehicle to approach the driver, the Dodge pulled away. The police helicopter continued to track the Dodge from overhead, another 50 to 100 feet down the road. The deputy pulled the Dodge over for a second time. This time, the deputy ordered the driver to put his hands out the window, throw his car keys out the side window, which he did before being arrested. The man was 20-year-old James Fields Jr. Let's go straight out to Ellison Barber, who is in Charlottesville, Virginia. Ellison? James Field Jr. is facing a number of charges. The announcement coming from the Charlottesville Police Department moments ago, he's charged with one count of second-degree murder, three counts of malicious wounding, and one count of hit-and-run failure to stop with injury. Paramedics brought 20 people to this hospital that I'm standing in front of now. Five people remain in critical condition at this point in time. The Washington Post reported that by that evening, Five people were in critical condition, while 14 others were treated for less severe injuries. Nine people were discharged from hospital, but 10 remained hospitalized. Marcus's left leg and ankle were broken as a result of the impact. He was eventually discharged from the hospital in a wheelchair and underwent extensive physical therapy. Marissa sustained a cut on her arm and a 14-inch bruise on her left leg. Courtney had a bruised bone and a torn meniscus in her knee. She described herself as unable to sleep for about two months following the attack. The driver of the Toyota suffered a broken ankle and head and back injuries. Her sister, who was the passenger, was later diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. Another survivor, who attended the counter-protest with his wife, was struck in the head and shoulder by the windshield of the Dodge and was flipped into the air. He sustained a concussion, tear in his wrist, and a labral tear in his hip requiring surgery including four screws and permanent sutures. Another survivor who attended the rally told investigators that just prior to the attack, he heard a car engine revving, then screaming. When the man regained consciousness on the road, he lay beside Heather. I was in and out of consciousness. I tried to move, but I just couldn't get up. Screaming could be heard everywhere. I tried to keep my eyes closed. Someone took my hand and put it on my head and said, You need to close your head. It didn't make any sense, but then I saw blood. That's when I gave up. The survivor sustained a large head laceration, a crushed left arm, and a concussion, resulting in ongoing headaches and emotional trauma. Other survivors suffered injuries including a damaged spleen, lumbar fracture, swollen limbs, bruises and abrasions, a brain bleed, and significant hip and knee injuries. One survivor who was struck by the Dodge lay dazed on the ground with blood pouring from her face. She was terrified she would be run over as the car reversed. Later recalling, I knew that I needed to move or I was going to die. I had to fight the feeling of wanting to go to sleep because I thought I would surely die. The survivor's injuries were among the most severe. She sustained a fractured skull, broken tooth, vertigo, cuts, bruises, and lacerations. She also experienced a prolonged inability to sleep or eat following the attack, causing her to miss an entire semester of college. One survivor regained consciousness in the hospital with no idea what had happened to him. The man's only memories of the immediate aftermath were that he was unable to walk, had blood dripping down his face, and a sense that something was terribly wrong, but he didn't understand why. The man sustained a severe concussion, a deep head laceration, 
and a severe leg fracture requiring surgery, including metal plates and screws. He was initially confined to a wheelchair during his recovery and required extensive ongoing therapy and rehabilitation, including learning how to walk again. One survivor was struck so hard by the vehicle that she came out of her shoes from the force of her body being thrown 10 feet backwards. The woman's face struck the ground, causing a concussion, bruises, scrapes, temporary loss of vision in one eye, and a large forehead laceration requiring 11 stitches. Another survivor who sustained two broken legs, a broken hand, required surgery on a hand with permanent metal plates and screws. One survivor who escaped the initial impact saw what happened and ran to help those who had been struck. However, by this time, James Fields was reversing. Accelerating backwards, he struck the survivor in her stomach so hard that she was forcibly carried backwards onto the trunk of the vehicle as it fled the scene. When the survivor fell off the side of the Dodge, she became wedged between it and a parked truck. The survivor sustained a shattered pelvis, fractured orbital socket and cheekbones, broken spine, broken arms, and abrasions. The shattered piece of bone in the woman's broken pelvis severed one of her arteries, causing life-threatening internal bleeding requiring emergency surgery. Heather was among those ferried to the University of Virginia Medical Center. Marissa was desperate to find her missing friend, so she gave Heather's information to hospital staff and law enforcement. Heather's best friend Justin had by now heard some details of what had occurred. In a panic, he called to tell Susan that he thought Heather had been struck by a vehicle, telling her Marissa was also trying to get in touch. Susan hadn't been watching the news that day, so had no idea of the carnage that had unfolded. Susan asked Justin to get Marissa to call her. Meanwhile, Heather's brother had seen what had happened on TV and called Heather's phone, only for a stranger to answer and say they'd found the phone downtown. Susan drove to the hospital, hoping that Heather had been simply knocked unconscious. But by the time Susan arrived to be greeted by detectives, it was too late. Heather had died from her injuries. She sustained severe trauma to her throat and abdomen, a severe hemorrhage causing blood to drain into her chest cavity, respiratory failure, and multiple bone fractures. The cause of death was determined as blunt force injury to Heather's chest and abdomen. The impact of the vehicle had ruptured Heather's aorta in four places, resulted in her skin and blood being left on the Dodge. And amongst attempts to process the news that had so unexpectedly torn her world apart, Susan had to make a heartbreaking phone call to Heather's father, Mark, to tell him that neither of them would be seeing their daughter again. I did read in the paper, your, your former wife called you, right? Yeah, yeah. She, she let me know what... She called me first. And what did she say? She said they killed her daughter. You know, I hadn't been watching the news. I didn't know what was going on in Virginia. And uh, I had Jesse just, she called, I pick up the phone. I'd just gotten up from a nap or something Saturday afternoon. And uh, through tears and from the hospital, she said, our daughter's gone. And I kind of lost it. I kind of freaked, you know, and uh, and we, uh I think my daughter-in-law was called, and she called my dad and mistakenly said it was me. 
and it got him shook up. What's your well, come find out, it was my daughter. I didn't know what to think. I hung up from my from my uh, from my ex-wife, and and I called my friend. Uh, the only could thing, you believe the only it? Thing, only thing that I could think of was I need to think straight right now, and I need I need solid praying people right now. So I called my friend, he's a retired police chaplain that has had a lot of experience with tragedy and, and aftermath of, of turmoils, tumultuous situations like this. So I called him first. I cried out to him and we prayed on the phone and then uh, my dad came and picked me up and we all went to his house. Uh, what kind of person, from what I could tell? My daughter was a strong, opinionated woman that was willing to stand up for what she believed in. It was, for her, it wasn't lip service. It was real. And she was willing to, you know, stand up for basically equality for everyone. She was against racism, of which I am as well. Um, and she, she was trying to be there to stand up for that. She lived, if I'm not mistaken, she lived within a 10-mile radius of the mall in, where she was killed. And um, so, and all she worked and lived in Charlottesville area. So she was privy to the, the, the sentiment and the anger and everything, the political stuff that was going on in, in the town. And so uh, between her and she, she went there with a crowd of people and, you know, this is what ensued. So now, wait a minute. I want to say one thing. The situation is, I don't, I don't hold any ill will toward this young fella that did this. He's stupid, okay? He's only 20 years old. He don't have sense enough to make a lifelong decision about nothing, you know? He, he was misinformed. He was deceived. And, you know, I forgive him. Flat out, just I forgive him. The thing is, he's going to have to live with the consequences, and he's going to have to live knowing that he took somebody's life for the rest of his life. That's, I wouldn't wish that on nobody. Police, meanwhile, had determined the attack was deliberate. In James' police interview immediately following the attack, he stated that just before he drove the car into the crowd, he was scared. He believed that the Toyota and the minivan ahead of him on 4th Street were being swarmed by the crowd, and that he would be attacked. The New York Times reported that during his interview, James repeatedly apologized and asked if anyone had been injured. When the detective informed him that someone had been killed, James appeared shocked and burst into tears. After almost 18 hours of ongoing violence and unrest, law enforcement were granted the power to enforce curfews that night to curb the chaos. But fortunately, that Saturday night in Charlottesville was eerily quiet. And that's it for part one. In the next episode, we explore killer James Fields Jr., the immediate fallout from his cruel actions, and the impact his actions had on his victims. We'll discuss Heather Heyer and how her death, though far too soon, wasn't in vain. But I think I'll stop here. Thank you for listening, and keep the fire burning.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons' new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply.